reading verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of God. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. Amen. Father God, we thank You for Your Word and I pray that uh, You would take the feebleness of man's lips and that You would enable this Word to build up and encourage Your people. Pray for Your presence and Your anointing. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. My dad taught me not to be afraid of animals. I say he taught me, but I didn't learn the lesson very well because I was scared to death of animals, uh, some animals anyway. Uh, for example, in Ethiopia, there was a breed of cattle that the Emperor Haile Selassie had introduced into the country uh, that were just enormously huge. And I may be remembering it wrong, but I remember in ninth grade, it seemed like these cattle's backs were taller than I was. Uh, well over 2,000 pounds, a lot of the, the bulls that were there. And my dad... Uh, just seemed to know how to work with these animals. He didn't have any problem whatsoever, even the ornery ones. He never let them get the upper uh, uh, hand on him. And I remember one time there was a bull that had escaped and gotten into an enclosed garden area at our location. And there were a whole bunch of people there, but they were scared of this animal as well. There was about a dozen police officers and men who had skipped over the fence and uh, just did not want to handle it. My dad walked in, but the bull would have none of it. He charged my dad. My dad grabbed it by the horns and in a matter of seconds had it on the ground where they could tie it up. Um, there's no way you'd catch me in that garden enclosure. No way. Um, <laughs> I didn't even like dealing with hogs. And I really respect people like uh, the Dykstras and Dave Denicus, and there's probably others of you who you know, can handle hogs no problem. Now, I don't know how it is with pigs, but my dad told me that uh, uh, animal, many animals can sense that you're afraid of them. And if they realize that you're afraid of them, that they will not respect you. And uh, so he taught me how to face down dogs. And I think I was uh, fairly successful with that. He tried to teach me that bees can smell your fear. And I don't know if that's an old wise tale or if it's true, but I tend to believe him because they left him alone and they chased me halfway around the compound. <laughs> they always picked on me. But my dad did give me a lot more confidence in working with horses and mules. We had quite a few of them. That was our only transportation on one of the stations. And apparently, uh, after my dad told me, you know, when, when you get bucked off of that horse, you've got to show no fear. Get right back on the saddle and show him who was boss. And apparently I fooled the horses into thinking I had no fear because even though my emotions were churning, uh, eventually I got to the place where uh, my horse just was very respectful of me. He's continued to chase down people with bared teeth, you know, try to bite them. 
Uh, he stopped doing that with me because he knew he'd get uh, slapped over his nose. And uh, uh, he stopped bucking, even trying to buck with me, even though he continued to buck with others. And so even though I did not have success with a lot of animals, uh, my uh, dad's admonition to get back in the saddle when you get bucked off became almost like a metaphor of life for me, that you don't quit, don't give up, you get back in the saddle. And it may be that some of you have experienced a painful spiritual fall and you've become kind of horse shy. Uh, you're fearful of getting back in that saddle. You've tried obeying the Bible's injunctions to exhort one another, but when you've tried to do it, even lovingly, it kind of backfired and bit you. Uh, or maybe uh, it was a situation where you tried to witness, but the person that you tangled with uh, really made a fool out of you and it was very embarrassing. Or it may be a situation where you made the right ethical decision at work and it got you fired. Uh, sometimes living our calling that God has given to us in life is much like riding a horse. There are times of exhilaration when you're galloping along at full speed with the wind blowing through your hair and it's great. You love it. And the next moment you're on your back end or you, you got a sore shoulder because you've been bucked off. And that was the situation with these apostles. We saw last week that they were bucked off of a horse in chapter 13, verse 50, where it says, But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of that city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. They were thrown out. But there were two ways in which Paul and Barnabas did not give up. The first was uh, listed in the first part of the next um, verse. They shook off the dust from their feet against them. Uh, that's an indication that they're calling upon a higher power to deal with them. They're going to be back to this city later, but they're saying, Lord, you handle this situation. And the next way they showed this was in the next words and came to Iconium. And uh, when you get into uh, chapter 14, where we're at now, they find the same kind of successes in verse one and the same kind of opposition in verse two that they had in the previous chapter. The success uh, verse 1 was no doubt very exhilarating, just as fun as riding a horse at full gallop. Now, it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. There's nothing quite so thrilling as seeing multitudes of people coming to Christ. But then comes the opposition in verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Uh, they aren't quite getting bucked off yet, but it's getting to be a nasty ride for them. And uh, in light of that, I want you to notice the very interesting word at the beginning of verse 3. Therefore, they stayed there a long time speaking boldly in the Lord. Now, what's that therefore pointing back to? It's pointing back to the opposition. Uh, it was precisely because of the opposition that they stayed there a long time. And I think in, in, there may be in a, two or three reasons for that, but at least they were recognizing they're having success. It's one of the reasons why Satan is opposing them so much. They're having success. And yet that's one of the first times, uh, as soon as we get a little bit of opposition, we're ready to bail out. We don't like it. And it may be an indicator you're doing something right. The reason you're getting opposition, the reason there's bucking is because you're making forward progress. A second reason 
that uh, they continued to stay there as they recognized if this kind of opposition is coming, this church is going to need to be grounded in the Word of God. They're going to need to be shown how to persevere in the faith. They can't just leave it without preparation. Now, this has been the normal pattern of Paul and Barnabas. And if you look in your outline, I'm not going to read the verses there, but I just kind of listed it for you. Some of the times they're bucked off. Chapter 13, verse 50. Get back in the saddle. Like I said, the first four verses of our chapter. They're bucked off again in verses 5 through 6. They get right back in the saddle in verses 6 through 18. They're bucked off the horse in verses 19 through 20 where he's actually stoned to death. So this is pretty serious stuff. They're dragging his body outside the city. He probably left it there for the animals to eat. And yet, what happens immediately in verses 21 and following? They go back to the same cities that they had been kicked out of earlier. Verse 21 says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and to Antioch. And by the way, this is one of several verses that indicates that just because a missionary is thrown out of a country um, does not mean he can't go back into that country. Some people have real difficulties, you know, with what I'm doing. You know, you get thrown out. The government doesn't want you there. You should be obedient to the government. But they were thrown out of these cities as well. And there is a higher king that mandates the Great Commission to go forward. And so, even though this passage is primarily going to be looking at the actions and the message of the apostles, I think we need to take it to heart no matter what our calling and whatever our station of life might be. Uh, we need to help our children to learn how to stick with a, a project, how to get back on the horse when they get bucked off. We need to learn how to do the same ourselves. So we've looked at what Paul and Barnabas did. Let's look next at what they preached and why that was so controversial. Now, I think that this is a needed corrective to the evangelical church of uh, today, which has in recent years been redefining the gospel as being a relationship, a feeling or an experience. Uh, now, certainly some feelings and some unique experiences accompany the gospel. I'm not saying that that does not happen. Of course it happens, but we should not confuse those with the gospel. And certainly we have great... Um, uh, great uh, relationship that God has ushered us into, but the relationship per se is not the gospel message. And we'll be seeing why in a moment. The Bible is quite clear. The gospel is a verbal message from God that is communicated in propositions or meaningful statements. And some of you are probably thinking, duh, well, of course, you know, why do you have to say that? Of course, it's a message. But the reason I have to say it to you is because you and I live in a postmodern world that does not believe in the necessity. Some don't even believe in the possibility of propositional truth uh, any longer. We live in a time when the evangelical church no longer understands the gospel as being primarily propositional truth. For example, based on my own research, uh, I've come to the conclusion that a majority of the churches in our city no longer preach uh, a central doctrine of the Reformation that our sins are imputed to Christ. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us based on the substitutionary atonement of Christ. In fact, uh, I dare you to do this. In fact, I double dare you to do this. One or two of you go and over the next month, interview a hundred pastors and ask them one of two questions. Ask them, how do I get saved and see what they have to say? Or ask them, what is the gospel? And then record it 
And I bet you that most of those are going to say that it's, uh, they're going to define it in terms of a, a relationship, an experience, a reception of God's love. They'll speak of forgiveness of sins, but they probably will not explain how in the world a holy God can forgive us of our sins uh, when the Bible so clearly says that a ju- just judge may never overlook a, a, a crime. Uh, what some of these people are wanting to do is they're wanting to bypass the courtroom where the gospel really is and get into the living room, which is much more comfortable. What I want to say to you is you can't get into the living room unless you've gone through the courtroom. And uh, so many people are denying this aspect of, um, of the gospel. They don't believe that uh, God is a fearful judge who cannot sweep sins under the carpet uh, in fact, uh, so much of evangelicalism has a very happy uh, gospel. Uh, they don't uh, preach on judgment or on hell. Uh, church growth marketing says that's just not you know, a selling point <laughs> for a church. So that's not something they focus on. They don't see it as a legal declaration like all Protestants used to do. In fact, um, I clipped out, or Kathy clipped out for me, uh, an article by Michael Kelly from the Omaha World Herald on yesterday's and today's uh, events that are transpiring in uh, our city. And whether or not he is misrepresenting Palau, and I think Palau is probably a little bit stronger than some people have made him out to be. There's a lot of compromises that have gone on. But I think what he is talking about here is definitely descriptive of the modern church. He says, the hellfire and brimstone preacher, Billy Sunday, once thundered into Omaha like a storm. Luis Palau, by contrast, emits sunlight and a gentle breeze. Old-time religion, in its fearful, hellish way, seemed designed to make you feel bad. Kinder, gentler religious revivals today apparently hope to make you feel good. If H.E. Double Hockey Sticks is spoken at this weekend's Luis Palau Heartland Festival, it will be an H of a surprise, is uh, what he says there. Now, again, just set aside whether he's misrepresenting Luis Palau or not. Uh, Forget about that. This is certainly the image that many churches are trying to convey. They're trying to appear to be a nicer brand of Christianity. And the kind of boldness that verse 3 had to have in the message there is really not needed for the message that is being proclaimed because it's a a message people like. God loves you just the way you are. It's a a great message. Uh, So, uh, what I want to do is I want to go through and uh, show six things from this passage that stand in contrast to the new Gospels of the emerging so-called evangelical church. We live in an age of apostasy, and it's very important we be grounded in the Scriptures. Point one is that the Gospel was a verbal message with words communicating the propositional truth of the Word. Now, many people nowadays quote Francis of Assisi's Uh, words that said, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words as if that was saying a good thing. I say it's a total abdication to a false gospel. Uh, And yet, evangelicals, they quote that all the time as being a good thing. Even in the 1200s, that was not a good thing. Now, the story goes that Francis of Assisi, at a big monastery, uh, told one of the new recruits that he was going to take him on a preaching a mission into town, and the new recruit was very eager, enthusiastic, 
And so the two of them went through the main streets and went all down the alleys of that town without saying a word. And after they had traversed the town, they went back to the monastery without having saying a word. And the younger monk reminded Francis they were supposed to be going to preach. Francis said, my son, we have preached. We were preaching while we were walking. We have seen, been seen by many. Our behavior has been closely watched. It was thus that we have preached our morning sermon. It is of no use to walk anywhere to preach unless we preach everywhere as we walk. And then comes the famous words, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Now, what he is implying there is that you can have the gospel without words and that the words are optional. If necessary, use words. But that is totally, totally false. The word gospel occurs 100 times in the New Testament and it's consistently said to be preached, spoken, declared, confessed. It is called the truth of the gospel. Galatians 2.5 and 2.14 is being the word of truth. Ephesians 1.13 or the word of the truth of the gospel. Colossians 1.5. It is always propositional. This means you can't have the gospel in the stars. I was asked about that. There's many books out there that uh, purport uh, to uh, uh, that God has uh, given the gospel so that pagans who have never heard the gospel before uh, can be rightly judged if re they reject it. All they had to do is look at the stars and read those and they could get saved. No way. Romans 10. Read verses 14 through 15 and you will see there is no way they could get saved through the gospel stars. Why? They're, those are not propositional statements that the stars are making uh, to us. In fact, the reformers said that even the sacrament is not a sacrament without preaching. Okay, it, it does not make sense unless there is an explanation of that sacrament. It is not the gospel all by itself. It is the gospel when it is put together with preaching. Now, this may seem like overkill to you, but the modern church has rapidly been abandoning the idea of objective truth. Uh, and the emergent church is, uh, they're not the only ones, but they're a major purveyor of this new gospel because they deny that the gospel can be adequately stated in propositions or words. And they've borrowed a philosophy from Wittgenstein that says all truth claims are just word games. You know, that... Um, uh, have no objective meaning outside the person who made that statement. You've probably all heard people uh, on, uh, on the streets say, well, that's good for you. That's true for you. And this is true for me. That's where that idea came from. How could two opposite things be true? But people are quite content uh, to think that way. But what I am here to tell you this morning is that the gospel is not subjective. It is an objective truth communicated to us in the Bible. Secondly, it is something to be believed. That's the last uh, word of verse 1. They believed, it says. It's not talking about something that was felt. It's not talking about something that was seen. Not talking about something acted out. This is something that was a, a propositional statement that's either true or false, accepted or rejected, believed or disbelieved. Now, let's contrast that with several emerging church statements. Alan Jones said, Christianity as a set of beliefs doesn't work for me. Now, he says that in a context of all kinds of nice sounding things that many Christians would buy into, but that's where he's gently leading them uh, along to. Christianity as a set of beliefs doesn't work for me. 
Later in the book, he says, I am no longer interested in the first instance in what a person believes. Most of the time, it's so much clutter in the brain. I wouldn't trust an inch many people who profess a belief in God. Others who do not or who doubt have won my trust. I want to know if joy, curiosity, struggle, and compassion bubble up in a person's life. I'm interested in being fully alive. There's no objective authority. Now, he is saying forthrightly what some people cringe and would not be willing to say themselves, but these same people who cringe are assuming that same statement in the way in which they act. They are assuming that their experience is more important than their belief is. Um, Let me tell you something. I've had uh, experiences in my life that seem to contradict the Bible. And I've had to put my experiences on the back burner because the only thing that is infallible in life is the Bible. And uh, our experiences can contradict each other. I've had false memories. I thought for sure that it was put down over there, but it wasn't. Just ask my wife. It was over here and I found it. Sure enough. There is all kinds of ways in which our experiences can let us down. I had a charismatic pastor friend in town who said that he hates doctrine and has no room for doctrine since, and here's the famous quotation, doctrine divides, but love unites. I hate that statement, but a lot of people think, oh, that's a wonderful thing, you know. Yeah, we've got to have unity in Christ. Well, what I asked him is, uh, how, how does he know the difference between love and hate unless he has a doctrine of love? And then I asked him as a follow-up question, how he knows that doctrine divides and love unites. Does he have a a doctrine of division? (laughs) A doctrine of what these things talk about? But this is so common. This man just said, he just wants to know, do you love Jesus? That's all he wants to know. It's a very subjective, experiential gospel. The third marker that we see in this passage is that Paul and Barnabas gave effort to convince people to turn their minds. Verse 1, And so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. Here's how the New American Standard translates it. Spoke in such a manner that a great multitude believed. And the idea of the Greek is that the way they spoke made the difference. Okay, they sought to speak convincingly, which is just another way of saying Christianity was intended by God to be a rational religion, not an irrational religion. Okay, they reasoned with him. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it says of Paul that he was dialoguing with, arguing with, persuading, reasoning, convincing. Again, it's a rational religion, not an irrational, but increasingly Christianity has been drifting in an irrational direction. Let me give you a quote from an evangelical church website. It says, we can no longer afford to lead with formulations. Now, formulations are things like catechisms, um, confessions of faith, doctrinal statements, uh, systematic theologies, anything like that. We can no longer uh, afford to lead with formulations, he says. People today are moved by their experiences of faith much more than by rational arguments or doctrines about faith. Can you see there is an abandonment of the intellectual and the verbal? Dan Kimball, an emergent church pastor, said, Modern thinkers want things orderly and systematic because they learn in a logical and progressive manner. They prefer generally to sit and listen. 
Emerging post-Christian generations, on the other hand, long to experience a transcendent God during a worship, rather a worship gathering, rather than simply learn about Him. And I have no problem with experience. I've had wonderful experiences in my walk uh, with God. But uh, these people are not talking about an experience that is grounded upon the doctrines of the Scripture and judged by those Scriptures. No, they're talking about walking away from doctrine, walking away from objective truth, and living and being judged by uh, their experiences. It's a wholesale move away from rational discourse into emotive discourse. And again, I want to emphasize, I'm not saying emotions are wrong. You've heard me preach sermons on the importance of emotions in the Scripture. But without the foundation that these apostles laid down, emotions become unanchored and very easily manipulated. Now, another thing we see in this passage is that Paul and the Judaizers addressed the minds of these believers. It wasn't emotional manipulation. The Judaizers, on the other hand, they were very much involved in emotional manipulation. You can see that in the first words of verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles. Uh, The Greek words there indicate a a fomenting of their passions, stirred up their their emotions. Now, they too, though, recognize if they're going to compete, they've got to capture the people's minds as well. And so it goes on to say, and poison their minds against the brethren. Now, that's ultimately a battle for the minds and the souls of people. And there are many ways that people's minds can be poisoned. It doesn't just have to be through uh, passions like here. One church pastor, Spencer Burke, said, a move away from intellectual Christianity is essential. We must move to the mystical. And the contemplative movement, some of you have heard about the contemplative movement. Uh, Many evangelical, I've even seen reformed people that have been buying into this It is exactly that. It is a move away from the rational and into the mystical. Another emergent leader said, propositional truth is out and mysticism is in. Now, the boldness of these words, it just takes my breath away. But he says, propositional truth is out. Mysticism is in. People are not necessarily put off by a religion that does not make sense. They're more concerned with whether a religion can bring them into contact with God. And so he's saying, addressing the minds... And making sense is no longer important to him. What's really important to him is experience. So I hope you can see the danger here. Another indicator of Paul's message was not man-centered message is it took courage to speak it. That's implied in verse 3. So speaking boldly, or as the Greek could be rendered, bold words. Now he's indicating that the kind of words that he uttered are so audacious, it takes boldness to speak those words. That's, that's what that is indicating. And we need courageous men who are willing to stand against the world like Athanasius did. And like our, the Reformers, uh, Luther and, and um, John Calvin and Zwingli and Booser and some of those other uh, guys did. The modern message that does not want any H-E-W hockey sticks uh, in it does not take boldness. Why? Because it didn't really offend the world. Yeah, you can believe that if you want, and I'll believe this. But the message of the Scripture allows only one belief. Jesus is the only way. And you start doing that, you're going to get persecuted. It takes boldness to be able to say that. And so I want to ask ourselves to evaluate our hearts. Do we have that kind of boldness or are we apologetic about the Word of God? 
Okay, the last thing I wanted to mention on Roman numeral 2.A is that they appealed to an authority beyond their own minds. It speaks of the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of His grace. Okay, the ultimate proposition that God and the apostles pointed to was the Bible as the Word of God. They didn't present themselves as the final authority. God's revelation was. And God was not bearing witness to them. He was bearing witness to His own Word. Even the miracles were not the final authority. They all pointed to Scripture. And if you examine in the book of Acts the way Paul preached, he always reasoned from the Scriptures. They were biblical arguments. In Acts chapter 17, he praises the Bereans for checking out everything he said according to the Old Testament. And so this is a caution and a balance to what we have been saying in this, in this point. We're not saying you guys need to be rationalists. If you make man's mind the ultimate measure of truth, you have got just as great an enemy of the faith as irrationalism. See, irrationalism and rationalism are not opposites. They are bedfellows that don't need the Scriptures. Okay? They, 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 are, they are not to be thought of as opposites. What is the opposite of both of those is thinking God's thoughts after Him. The only way we can have a reasonable faith is if we line our thinking with the thinking of the God who knows everything. Thinking His thoughts after Him. In John 17, Jesus said, Your word is truth. Now, that is much different than saying your word is true. There are a lot of evangelicals who are willing to say your word is true, although that's becoming increasingly more rare as well as limited inerrancy is taking over. They don't say it's true in history or in geology or other things like that. But it's still, even a person who says your word is true, that's not quite as radical as saying your word is truth. What's the difference between the two? Well, if I say, you know, I, I've really investigated this uh, Bible a lot and I've come to the conclusion that this word is true. Who's the judge? I'm the judge, right? And what's coming under judgment? The Bible is coming under judgment. Is it true? Or is it false? Which means that it is being judged by a standard outside of itself. God says, no, there can be no standard outside of God by which his word is judged. But if we say your word is truth, that means it becomes the measure and the standard of all truth claims. It's a totally different approach. And the Scripture says, your word is truth. Nothing in man is the standard. Not our emotions, not our experience, not our programs, not our mind. Nothing. God's word is the ultimate standard. Now, let's pick up speed a little bit uh, here and uh, look at point B. Second thing we notice about their preaching is that it was a mandate from God. This was not a polite gospel. It was a call from Almighty God for these people to lay down their arms now, this is implied in two words. Now, first of all, the Greek word for unbelieving in verse 2. Now, I've got 16 Greek uh, dictionaries and all of them have willful disobedience as part of the definition. Many of the dictionaries say that's the only definition. It's disobedient. They were disobedient Jews. But uh, if you translate it as unbelieving, which you can you need to realize that it's a willful unbelief, a refusal to believe, but there's a strong moral connotation of disobedience in the term. Now, that fits in with the message of the gospel that we've seen several times in the book of Acts. It's not an invitation. Okay? It, it, it is not an if you please. It was a command of Almighty God's 
God to rebels to repent and believe the gospel. God sends his ambassadors into the world and says, look, guys, the only way there's going to be peace is if you give an unconditional surrender. That's the gospel. It's a call for an unconditional surrender. And that's why the phrase obey the gospel occurs in Romans 10, 16, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, 1 Peter 4, 17. Now, the gospel needs to be obeyed. Why? It's a mandate, a mandate from God. There isn't any God loves you just the way you are message. It is repent and believe the gospel. The second word which implies this mandate from God is the word apostles. This word refers to an ambassador or an envoy. Dictionary says that an apostle, quote, has full po- the full powers and is the personal representative of the one sending him. A close connection is established between the sender and the recipient. And so when they spoke, well, they spoke with the full authority of God. It was not, and I think so, or God probably is going to do such and such. They spoke with certainty. Why? Because they had the very revelation of God. And we've got the revelation of God as well in the Word, and we need to be proclaiming that with certainty, not apologetically. Now, this stands in contrast to the polite gospel which so many people proclaim. Uh, A few years ago, I was invited to do a TV ad jointly with a bunch of other pastors in town. I thought, well, it might be a nice way of of uh, working together with these people. And as usually is the case, I'm behind schedule, have not read the ad, and I'm running out the uh, the door, grab this ad, and I'm reading as I'm running. Oh, and I look at this thing, and I say, there's no way. And I turn around and go back into the office. I don't remember the exact wording, but it was something to this effect. All of us are supposed to shout into the TV screen. Uh, something to this effect. Smile. God loves you just the way you are. And that was it. That's the message of the church to the to the culture. I, I, I was just I was flabbergasted. You've all read tracks that say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. At least some of those tracks go on to contradict that by talking about H uh, E double hockey sticks and which shows that God's plan isn't very wonderful for at least some people. But if you've ever been tempted to soften the approach of the gospel, I would encourage you to read that track that I put into your outlines there. It's uh, by Ray Comfort. Uh, I had ordered a bunch of the tracks and they didn't arrive uh, by yesterday. So I asked his permission if I could just copy it for this one Sunday and they'll be on the, on the back table later on. But I, I think you'll find it to be... Uh, to be a helpful one. This is what it looks like in case you didn't get it in your bulletin. So we've seen that they preach something to be believed. Secondly, a mandate from God. The third thing that we see about their message is that it was a message of grace. Middle of verse 3 says, bearing witness to the word of His grace. Now, we've already seen in our book uh, of Acts series that the little word grace is an awesome word. It's such a wonderful word. It's God's favor toward man and all of the blessings that flow from that favor. You'd think everybody in the world would love this message. Why in the world would they be bucking against this? In fact, bucking so severely, they hate this message of grace so much that they want to kill Paul and Barnabas. And you might follow up that question is, why don't they want to kill you know, a lot of people today with the kind of message that we're preaching today? In fact, they feel like that's all great, you know? Unbelievers having no problem uh, with the message. What's going on there? Well, there's a fourfold answer that I think we can give to that. Why do they hate grace? First, grace is humbling to man when it is properly preached. Now, if there's one thing 
that will make men, women, and children fight you tooth and nail is if you attack their pride. If you do something that hurts their pride. And yet that is exactly what the gospel of Jesus Christ does at the outset. Now, we see the wonderful benefits that flow from grace. We wonder, why in the world would they choose hell instead of choosing heaven? The reason they do that is because their pride gets in the way. James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride and grace are opposites. It's pride which keeps people from grace before they are saved, James 4, and it's pride which keeps people from enjoying more grace when they are saved, and that's 1 Peter 5, verse 5. And the ironic thing is, the very people who tell you and deny that they have sin in their lives, that they're not really that bad, are the same people who want to stay in their sin. It's really ironic. Uh, They don't want to be pulled from it, but they don't want to be considered to be sinful uh, either. But uh, anyway, um, uh, it is really not a, a, a contradiction. The problem with all unregenerate people is that apart from grace, they don't realize how bad they are. Grace is humbling. Grace exposes our sin. This is the second point here, uh, the second reason. And the whole point of Romans 1 through 3 is that exactly that point that God's grace exposes sin. He pounds and pounds and pounds in those first three chapters on how utterly sinful people are. The problem with the unregenerate man is that apart from grace, they don't really realize how bad they are. They think they're pretty good. Oh yeah, I do a few bad things every once in a while, but generally speaking, I'm pretty good, they think. And God knows that the best way to help people is to bring them to a place where they see how horribly, utterly filthy and vile they are in the face of God's holiness. It takes grace to open their eyes to that. Even Christians still have the flesh in them, don't they? And so, sometimes we will buck against this aspect of God's grace and we prefer the gospel of self-esteem. I don't know how many times I've heard Christians parrot self-esteem phrases and it's really destructive to truly growing in grace. And I want to illustrate that by quoting from Jay Adams. He tells the story of a counseling situation that he had. He said, June was a Christian girl, some 20 years of age, quite stout and very depressed. On her personal data inventory, she had written, I am disgusting, stupid, ugly, rotten, and a complete failure. Her mother immediately jumped in upon hearing this inventory read out loud in session saying, Oh, don't believe her. She's a wonderful girl. She won the Sunday school contest, was able to go to camp for a a week for free, etc., etc. Counselor stopped her mother abruptly and said, Now listen. June knows more about her life than you or I or anyone else but God. And if June says she's disgusting, stupid, ugly, rotten, and a complete failure, she must have some good reasons for saying so. Turning to June, the counselor continued, June, tell us how disgusting you are. Tell us just how stupid you've been. Tell us what it is that makes you so ugly. Tell us about the rotten things you've been doing. And tell us also, June, something about the ways in which you have failed. June's head had been hanging down since she entered, but when the counselor said this, she looked up as if to say, is he for real? She must have concluded that he meant it because for the first time she began to talk freely and her story poured out. And actually the mother was flabbergasted at all of the evil things her daughter had been doing behind her back. She had no idea, but she also stood in awe as she began to watch her daughter who for 
months and months had been so depressed, she wanted to commit suicide, finally gaining joy and hope when she took her own sins seriously, calling her sins as evil as God said her sins were, and receiving the grace of God to get out of those sins. But the point I was making earlier is that people buck when God convicts us of sin, and they do that whether it's through preaching, counseling, any other method. Third reason why people hate genuine grace is that it cannot be controlled or manipulated. It's one of the reasons I preached on the doctrine of predestination last week. People hate that. They revile it. Why? It cannot be controlled. God is the one who chooses when, where, and to whom He will minister His grace. And we should not see grace as being like an electric switch that you can just at will turn on and turn off. Now, obviously, we pray for God's grace, don't we? We pray that His grace would flow through the, through the sacraments and through the preaching of the Word, but God alone is the one who controls that. That's one of the reasons why magic is popular and grace is not. Magic is manipulation. We're in control. You know, if we say the right phrases, do the right things, God or the gods or fate or something has to come through. That's manipulation, right? Grace absolutely refuses to be manipulated. And yet many Christians treat uh, grace as if it is magic. You just say the right thing, boom, God's going to have to come through for you. Now, the last reason grace is resisted is that genuine grace does not leave us in our sin. Romans 6, 15 through 18 says this, Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That's where God's grace always leads. It leads you to holiness. And if you're an unbeliever, till your heart is changed, you're not going to like that. That is not something that's going to be popular. See, the irony is, as I mentioned earlier, the very people who don't like to be told they are sinful don't like to give up their sin. That's why I say that legalism and antinomianism are not opposites. They are bedfellows. Every legalist is an antinomian. Antinomian means against the law of God. Legalism is trying to do things either in your own efforts or adding to the law of God. The Pharisees, Jesus said that they were legalists. They added all kinds of rules and regulations to the word, which were not in the word. But what did they do? They also violated God's word left and right. It's inevitable. Anytime you see a legalist, I've seen some of the, the worst legalists I've uh, had to live around were fundamentalists who did not believe were under law, were under grace, uh, but they concluded from that, we, don't have, we can ignore the laws of God. We don't have to follow them. But you know what? Strangely enough, they were incredibly legalistic. They had all kinds of rules you had to follow. You couldn't go to movies. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't dance. You couldn't uh, wear a beard. Oh, boy, especially if you're a girl. No. Uh, <laughs> Uh, beards, that was completely out. Uh, women couldn't wear earrings, uh, lipstick. Uh, they had all kinds of rules and regulations that the Bible said were fine. They said were morally wrong. I want to emphasize legalism and antinomianism always go hand in hand. Uh, in contrast, uh, and I should point out, even the worst antinomians, the ones who are you know, shacking up with a, a, a girl, they get incensed when somebody else sleeps with their girl, don't they? 
They've set up rules and uh, they may have other rules that help to make them feel a little bit better. But I want you to turn with me so you can see this with your very own eyes. Titus. Titus chapter 2. Now you hear me repeating some of these things, but we're living in an age where these things have to be repeated because we are so immersed in the opposite that we can become affected as, as Christians. Titus 2. And uh, I want to read verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, and here's what grace is going to teach us, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. This is why grace is controversial both outside the church and inside the church. There are many people in the church, you start bringing God's law to bear, they're going to buck, they're going to kick, they're going to bite, uh, they're going to come against you. And the reason for that is found in Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Now, God's message of grace is such an incredibly wonderful message if it is received by faith. It is God's undeserved favor, all of the blessings that flow from it. But when you preach this wonderful message, don't be surprised when people buck against it. Just anticipate it's going to happen because... Wherever God's grace is not already preceded to prepare their hearts, uh, they're going to be opposed to you. Point uh, D shows another remarkable thing. It says they were preaching the gospel. Word gospel simply means good news. And again, you might wonder, if it's good news, how come they're getting bucked off? How come people are really upset with them? Same reasons as for grace. I won't uh, cover that. In fact, for time's sake, we're going to skip over Roman numeral 3. How did they preach? Preach boldly, not timidly. Preached with authority. But let's quickly outline the things that their preaching produced within the lives of their hearers. Verse 1 says that their preaching produced faith. Well, that means we need to sit under the preaching of the Word. We need to bring our children to sit under the preaching of the Word if we want them to grow in faith. Verse 1 says they so spake, so spoke that a great multitude believed. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God, says Romans 10.17. Luke 8.12 says that Satan tries to snatch the Word out of people's hearts as soon as the Word is preached to them. Why? So that they will not believe. And there's many other Scriptures that indicate there's a connection between being under the sound of the preaching of the Word and faith. And if, as the Bible says, there is little faith, Matthew 14.31, growing faith, 2 Thessalonians 1.3, and great faith, Matthew 8.10, and if the difference between those three is the degree to which we are sitting under the preaching and the reading of the Word of God, we need to change some of our habits or we're never going to grow in faith. Now, that's all I've got to say on that point. But it produced opposition as well. It's impossible to stay neutral to the Word of God. It either draws you closer to the Lord or it hardens you against the Lord, which means if you are rebels against God right now, it's a dangerous thing to be sitting under the preaching of the Word here. Why? Because you are going to get worse and worse and worse week by week as you listen to this word if you are not responding to it properly. You can't stay neutral. 
You're either growing in grace or you're becoming more and more hardened. And so here we find these people being hardened against uh, the gospel. In verse 2, they emotionally were opposed to him, intellectually opposed Paul and Barnabas. Uh, The emotional part has stirred up the Gentiles. The intellectual has poisoned their minds. But don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that the same message that can bring joy and faith to one person brings hatred and opposition to another. Okay, this by definition leads to division. Verse 4 says, But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews, and part with the apostles. This too is unavoidable if you're faithfully preaching the word. Now, some pastors do everything they can to avoid division. They don't want to have division. I think we just need to realize even Jesus had division based on His Word. John 7.43, it says, So there was a division among the people because of Him. Okay? It was because of Him. Anywhere Jesus is, there's going to be division. By the way, some people also say, well, I'll just avoid hanging around people if there's going to be trouble around people. But, you know, that's just like saying, I'm not going to ride a horse because I might get bucked off. Or I'm not going to get married because we might get into an argument. You know, or... I'm not going to make another friend because I got betrayed before. I'm never going to make friends again because I might get betrayed again. I mean, that's silly. We, we, we don't think about it with that. But many times people will avoid fellowship because fellowship can sometimes produce friction. Now, this division produced persecution. Uh, the enemies eventually ran them out of town. Verses 5 through 6 show the end result of this antipathy to the gospel if it's not um, restrained by God's grace. It says, When a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. Anyone who says such persecution cannot happen in America simply does not understand the doctrine of total depravity. Of course it can happen in America. In fact, it's beginning to happen in America. But it is worth noting that Paul and Barnabas flee. You know, they don't jump in front of the martyr's sword. Uh, We should try to avoid martyrdom if we can. Uh, That's a good thing. But they are going to come back here later when things cool down a bit. And so they do use some common sense and they don't volunteer to be a martyr. Everywhere they went, a church springs up. Uh, Preaching produced a church. In some places it was small and struggling. In other places it was very large and very strong. But God delights in allowing these uh, uh, apostles to have time when they can gallop like the wind. Now I want to end by outlining two other things that these servants of the Lord enjoyed when they stayed in the saddle. The first was spirit-anointed preaching. Verse 3, it says... um, Therefore, they stayed there a long time speaking boldly in the Lord. Now, those words in the Lord indicate an empowering or an anointing from God. And we need that, not just in our preaching. We need it in absolutely everything we do. I don't want to preach in the power of the flesh. I want to preach in the empowering of the Lord. But it says that we need to obey our parents in the Lord. We need to submit to our husbands in the Lord. Uh, We need to... Labor in the Lord. Uh, Rejoice in the Lord. Ephesians 6.10 says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. We need anointing for all of our tasks. 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, 
Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And that should be our goal. Get back in the saddle. Be immovable until we experience the empowering of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Pray that I would have Spirit-anointed preaching. The second thing they enjoyed was Spirit-empowered miracles. It says that God confirmed their message by granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, it wasn't the gospel, but it accompanied the gospel. And it's an incredibly wonderful thing when God sovereignly bestows miracles in the midst of His church. It's a blessing. It makes the times that we get bucked off uh, all worthwhile. Now, you may not like President Bush. I, I didn't vote for him myself, but he said something I thought was great back in March 24, 2004. He said, my fellow Americans, you can see from the scratches on my nose that I'm a little banged up tonight. Took a spill on the 16th mile of a 17-mile ride at the ranch in Texas. Secret Service offered me a lift back to the house, but I got back in the saddle and rode home. Any long ride is bound to have spills, but the way we Americans have always handled them is to get back in the saddle. And I would say the same to you, brothers and sisters. Do not let the discouragements, the abandonments, the financial setbacks that you have had make you give up. Uh, do not allow losses and pains and opposition to the gospel and ridicule of your homeschooling make you give up. To substitute DCC members into Bush's statement, any long ride is bound to have spills. But the way we members of DCC have always handled them is to get back in the saddle. Amen. Father God, we come to You and recognize we can't even get back into the saddle. We can't have the courage that we uh, should have apart from Your grace from beginning to end. Your grace uh, undergirds us. We thank You that You have sent Jesus to be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I pray that this, Your people, if they have been discouraged, and are ready to throw in the towel that they would be re-energized through Your Word and would be determined to get back in the saddle and to serve You faithfully to the end. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.